Well, if you would like to open your Bibles with us, we're going to be in Nehemiah. Um, If you're not sure where it is, we're going back to the Old Testament today, and we're going to start this new series now that we're done with Titus, and we're going to talk about how the church needs to rise up and build. The church of Jesus Christ needs to rise up and build. Um, I'll just be honest with you. Um, I thought that I was really clever Um, whenever I first started looking ahead and started planning out this series through Nehemiah. And there's a line um, in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 18, um, from the King James Version that that says, that says that as Nehemiah is talking to the people about what they need to do, he gives this rousing speech to the people, and the people respond by saying, let us rise up and build. And I'm like, you know what, that would make an awesome title for a sermon series. I'm going to use that. So I thought I was really clever whenever I came up with that title. And then I was like, you know what? I need to find a, a good backdrop for that so we can put it up here on the screen, you know. And I, so I started, started looking, and I went to our media source, and I typed in the search engine, Nehemiah, and guess what came up? That exact slide that said, rise up and build. And I thought, oh, so I'm not that clever. Okay. So... Apparently, I'm not as good as I thought I was. But the reason I think we need to talk about how we need to rise up and build is because what are we doing as the church? Like, what's, what's the point? What is the point of coming together like this on a Sunday morning? What's the purpose? What's the point whenever we say we need to go tell people about Jesus? I mean, I tell you every week, like, we need to be sharing the hope of Jesus that we have. Like, we need to be going and telling people about the hope that we have. But what's the point? What are we doing Are we really, truly, are we just content coming to a building once a week, singing some songs, listening to a few people talk, and then going home? Are we content with that? I hope not. I hope not. Because our purpose is actually to build something. It's to do something. It's to see God's kingdom come to earth, right? You think about the Lord's Prayer. It says, your kingdom come. We are literally asking God to build his kingdom here. And you know where that kingdom is? It's the church. It's where his spirit resides, in the church. So we should be praying for God to come and build something, not only in us personally, but in us corporately as we see the church grow. That's something we should see God building. We want to see God's kingdom come. So what the church needs to do is to rise up and build. And hopefully over the next several weeks as we look at this letter to Nehemiah, we see that there's really nothing that we need to be afraid of. We need to rise up. And not move in some kind of fearful way or with hesitation, like, I'm not sure if this is really our territory or somebody else's. Like, is this really the church's territory or is this government's territory? Is this the church's territory or is this the school's territory? Is this the church's territory or somebody else's? You know what? It's all God's territory. It's all His. The church needs to rise up and build. So, I hope that that's what we can see as we walk through this book of Nehemiah. Um, And I just love the way that it's framed in Nehemiah. Um, But I thought maybe the best way to start this series was to kind of give just a quick historical backdrop. Because oftentimes we talk about stories in the Bible and we read them like fairy tales. I mean, we, we can be honest, right? A lot of times we read about Jonah and we're like, yeah, that's a cute fairy tale. Uh, Nehemiah is a real event in a real place at a real time with real people. This is history. You know, these are actual events that took place. So maybe we should actually start by setting this in its time and its place in history. Okay, so I thought that might be a good way to start by, by looking at the historical backdrop. And please don't fall asleep as we're walking through a history lesson, okay? I'll try to go as quick as I can just so we can kind of get the lay of the land and then we'll dive into the text. All right? 
So, at this point, whenever we come to Nehemiah, actually we're going to back up a couple hundred years from Nehemiah's time, what we find is the kingdom of of Israel. But it seems simple. We say, okay, there's the nation of Israel. But it was a little more complicated than that. Because the nation of Israel had split. You had the northern tribes, and then you had the southern tribe of Judah. So you have these two kingdoms of Israel. Well, the northern kingdom... um, not, not like the southern kingdom was always godly, but the northern kingdom became wicked. And Israel, the nation of Israel, was conquered and the people were carried into exile by the Assyrians in roughly 722 B.C. Roughly 722 B.C. And some of you are going to go home and Google this and be like, well, this says 723 B.C., Jared. So that's why I'm saying roughly 722 B.C. Okay. Then, the Assyrians, they were subsequently conquered by the Babylonians about 100 years later in about 612 B.C. So, 722 B.C., northern tribes of Israel are conquered. 612 B.C., the Assyrians who conquered the northern tribes, they're conquered by Babylon. So, now you have a whole other regime stepping in who is even more powerful than the first. Then, because the Babylonians, because they wanted more influence and more power, they have all of these nations around Judah, so they think, you know what? What's stopping us from taking Judah, too? Now, at this point, Judah has already become a vassal nation of Babylon. So they're essentially owned. They're just kind of operating on their own, but they still have to pay taxes back over to Babylon. So they're still kind of owned by Babylon. So Babylon's like, okay, enough with this mess. We're in charge now. So they come, and they conquer the southern tribe of Judah, and they exile its people in 586 B.C. And at that time, the temple is destroyed. Completely destroyed. And that's a pretty big deal with the nation of Israel. Because what does the temple represent? The temple represented God's presence in the midst of his people. So symbolically what's happening is is Babylon comes in and conquers, conquers Judah and destroys the temple. God's saying, my presence is no longer here in the middle of my people. The thing that represented God's presence with his people has now been removed. Why? Why? I think that's a good question to ask. Like, why did that all happen? Is it because God decided one day his, his love was pretty fickle and he just said, you know what, I don't love Israel anymore? No. No, that wasn't it. Was it because, well, God just couldn't do anything about it? Also, no, that's not it. Was it because he's a bully who wanted to get back at these people who were evil? No, that's not it either. Actually, the answer to the question, why did all this happen with the nation of Israel, is rooted back, clear back with Moses. It's ground to clear back with Moses in Deuteronomy. See, Deuteronomy is kind of Moses' recap of all the law. So here he's running through everything. And as he comes to Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 1, he essentially says, faithfulness to God equals blessing. If the nation remains faithful to its God, continues to love its God, serve its God, then it's going to equal blessing. Pretty simple. We kind of get that. And then if you go just a little bit further through Deuteronomy 28, you get to verse 15 where the opposite is said. So, if there is disobedience towards God, that's going to equal a curse on the people. So, we get this idea. Faith faith in God, trust in God equals blessing. Turning your back on God is going to equal curse. Essentially, you want to walk away from God, he's going to let you. God isn't some grumpy old miser who's going to say, no, I've got you and I am ever, I'm, nope, uh uh-uh. You're not walking away from, no. God loves you, and the church likes to talk about free will, right? And just so you know, free will, there is no verse in the Bible that says, hey, humans have free will. There isn't one, okay? But the truth is, God's not some miser who's going to tie you down and say, nope, you can't ever walk away. And the people chose to walk away from God. 
They chose the things of the world. They chose everything else, and they chose to walk away from God. So, God says, you want to walk away from my presence, the temple is destroyed. You have effectively walked away from my presence. Okay. But, even when they were exiled in a foreign land, a place they didn't know, there was still a faithful remnant. There were still some who were faithful to God, even while in exile. So we find all of this is happening. The tribes are, all the tribes have now been conquered. They've all been exiled. But then, because things got kind of crazy, there was another empire that decided it was going to rise up. This time, it was the Persians under King Cyrus. In roughly 538, Cyrus conquered the Babylonians. And then we come to Ezra, okay, the book of Ezra in the Bible. In Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 says this about King Cyrus. It says, in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord's or the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout the entire kingdom and to put it in writing. And then Cyrus goes on to decree that the Israelites, the, the remnant of the people that were living in exile, were allowed to go home and rebuild their temple. So he let the Israelites go back to Jerusalem so that they could rebuild their temple and worship their God. So God raised, raised up Cyrus so that this could happen. So... Under the leadership of a guy named, a fun word, it's Zerubbabel. Um, everybody loves fun words like Zerubbabel. Um, the, the Israelites, they return and they build the altar and they begin work on the, temp, on the temple. After years of labor, a brief stop and start, um, the, and several prophets urging the process along, the temple was finally completed in roughly 516 B.C. Okay? Y'all bored yet? History lesson? Y'all hanging with me? Y'all good? Ah, good. All right. You guys are awesome. But that brings us up to our text for today. So would you all stand with me? We're going to read Nehemiah chapter 1 together. And actually, I love the fact that we stand whenever we read God's word together. Um, And we're going to see why we do that as we get further and further into Nehemiah. So Nehemiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, during the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, The remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. I said, Lord, the God of heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keeps his commands, let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites." I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. We have acted corruptly toward you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon... I will gather them from there and bring them to a place where I chose to have my name dwell. They are your servants and your people. You redeemed them by your great power and strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. 
At the time, I was the king's cupbearer. Thank God for his word. You may be seated. So the big part of the reason I wanted to set this in a real time, in a real place, is so that we would understand exactly where this falls in that line and what's happened and what's going on now. So the beginning of our text today, it tells us that this happened in the 20th year. What we learn is that this was the 20th year of the king Artaxerxes of Persia. So the reason it says the 20th year and the reason we don't have dating is because it's not like they were counting down the years until they finally came to Jesus, you know, because Jesus divided time. So we have before Christ and we have Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. And I know that some some secular um, um, scientists, some secular um, Academics are wanting to shift that where it's before the common era and then after the common era, um, whatever, okay, or common era and before the common era is the way it's divided, Uh, whatever, okay. For thousands of years now, we have known before Christ and Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. Okay, so B.C., A.D., it works for me. But it's not like people in the Old Testament, they were counting down and they were like, you know what, Christ is going to come in 500 years, so this is the year 500 B.C. No. That's not the way they did their dates. Instead, the way that they dated things would be by saying, okay, who's the king? How long has he been ruling? So it says the 20th year of the king that was reigning at that time. So that's how we come up with our dates. All right? Which is also why I say roughly whenever I say the year. So we find that he is, he is living under the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia. So this is in the 20th year of his reign, which puts us at about 445 or 444 B.C. Okay? About 445 years before Christ came. Which also means that this is taking place approximately 70 years after the completion of the second temple. Okay? 70 years, temple's been built. And here, in today's text, we're introduced to this guy named Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. I don't know who Hakaliah is, never met the guy. But... What we find here about Nehemiah is that he is living in the capital city of Persia. It says that he was in the fortress city of Susa, right? So this city of Susa was the capital city of Persia. This is where the king lives. It's where his palace is. So Nehemiah is there. And the very last line of chapter 1 actually tells us quite a bit about who Nehemiah was. It says, at this time, I was the king's cupbearer. Which may seem like a little addition, like, okay, why do we have his job title? Well, it actually tells us a lot about who Nehemiah was and what was going on around him. See, the cupbearer was more than like an ancient butler. It was bigger than that. The cupbearer, one commentator said, was a sort of bodyguard in the area of food, and he would test the king's food to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. In other words, this guy is right here with the king, and any time the king has something to eat or drink, the cupbearer, he, he has to taste it before the king can eat it. Because, you know, if somebody wants to get after the king, poison him. It's huh, taken care of. You know, the king's, we're done with him. No. So they have got, they've got a, a cupbearer here who tries anything beforehand to protect the king. Okay. But actually, this role was bigger than just food. This was a very prestigious role to be the king's cupbearer. Because it would require Nehemiah, the cupbearer, to be, to be knowledgeable in virtually every area. This is a guy who was with the king at all times. This guy was here. And it wasn't uncommon for this, this cupbearer to become friendly with the king. Always there. Always with him. If the king wanted somebody's opinion and you're just turning to the closest person, it's your cupbearer. Who's right there with you. 
And not only that, this guy would have to look good because he was going to be traveling with the king. He would have to be able to speak to people around him. This guy had to not only be knowledgeable in virtually every area, he needed to be advised whenever he could ask, and he had more access to the king than virtually anybody in the empire. This was an important person. In other words, this guy, Nehemiah, he had an important job, he made a good living, and would have been comfortable where he was. This is a powerful man. And I think that even though he was working for a pagan king, God had him exactly where he wanted him. Exactly where he wanted him. And I think it kind of echoes the words of Esther. See, Esther was the queen, right? Now, she was a Jewish, she was a Jew, and she was living under a pagan king. And married to the guy. So Mordecai comes in with Esther, and he says, Who knows, Esther? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And I think the same thing could be said of Nehemiah. He came to his royal position for just such a time as this. God had placed him exactly where he wanted him, when he wanted him there, and was ready to move him. God knew what he was doing. Enter Hanani. All we know about him is he's one of Nehemiah's brothers. And Hanani has been back in Jerusalem where his ancestors came from. Been back in Jerusalem, seeing the state of what's going on there. And he comes back, and of course, Nehemiah's like, this is my brother. Like, he just came back from a foreign land. It's not like this was, this was an hour's drive or anything like that. This was a trek to go from Susa to Jerusalem. So he comes back in, and Nehemiah's excited. He gets to see his brother. So he comes over, and he, I, I, just, I just picture this because, you know, I talk about my brothers too much. But if my brothers went someplace else, and I haven't seen them in a while, they come back in after a long travel, and I haven't talked to them or anything, I'm going to be excited. I'm going to go hug my brother. I'm going to be excited to see my brothers. So Hanani comes in, Nehemiah sees him, and he's excited to see his brother. And then he asks him, he says, what's it like back in our ancestral, in our ancestral home ground? What's it like? Unfortunately, that's where the joy ends. Because it's not a good report. But what we need to remember about Nehemiah is Jerusalem wasn't his home. I mean, this is... This is more than 100 years after the exile took place. This is not... Nehemiah may have never even been to Jerusalem, much less lived there. He's living in the most influential city in the world at this time. He's serving the king in Susa. That's his home. So he's never even been to Jerusalem. And I think that's important to remember. Like That was his great-great-grandfather's home back in the day, but he's never been there. He's never lived there. Yet he asks about his ancestral home ground. And Hanani tells him about Jerusalem and its sad state. So he starts talking about these broken walls. Starts talking about the broken walls in Jerusalem, right? And broken walls were pretty significant, especially at that time. And, and it depends on which scholar you want to read about. And they're going to give you a bunch of different reasons as to why this was so important. Um, one of them referenced that broken walls essentially equal a broken relationship with God. They were representative of your relationship with God. So by saying that Jerusalem's walls were broken down, he's saying that Jerusalem's relationship with God is broken. Something isn't right. Something needs to be fixed. Other scholars say that it's a purity issue, right? Especially if you go back to read Ezra, which is a a companion book to Nehemiah. If you go back and you read Ezra, Ezra talks a lot about the purity of the people and how they need to not intermarry with other nations around them so that way you don't have this, this watering down of the Jewish faith. So, there's a lot about purity and keeping, keeping the faith pure. 
And then there's others that will talk about poverty and slavery and danger that would have all come and been accompanied by broken down walls. I mean, think about it. This is an ancient time where people could have easily come in and ransacked your home. If you don't have walls protecting your city, there is nothing to stop invaders. Nothing. You can't defend a home without walls. So, that's a big deal. Now, perhaps these people, they, were, they felt as if there was nothing they could do. Maybe. I, I, I don't know. Maybe they felt like, well, what are we going to do about it? Right? There's nothing we can do. We, we don't even own this ground. It's still owned by Persia. Right? They, they were gracious enough to come and let us rebuild the temple, but now we can't protect the temple or our people. Uh, but what are we going to do? We don't have the time. We don't have the resources. We don't have the political backing. There's nothing we can do to make this happen. They may have felt hopeless. Or maybe they just didn't know where to start. Y'all ever had such a big task and you're like, I don't even know where to start this thing. That's the way we usually feel about laundry at our house. Laundry's going to keep on coming up, y'all. Just don't even know where to start. Maybe that's the way they felt. Regardless of why they weren't doing the work, the perception of God's people had become one of great trouble and disgrace. And that's what Hannah and I tells Nehemiah. He says, our people are in trouble and they are disgraced. This was kind of the moment of truth for Nehemiah, wasn't it? He just found out about his ancestral homeland being in trouble and disgrace. What's he going to do? And I think it's important that this was, to remember, this was just an ordinary day for Nehemiah. He's just going about his business, getting ready to taste poison food. Who knows? It's going to be a good day. He's just going about his business. He doesn't know what's going to happen today. And in comes his brother. But it makes me wonder if on an ordinary day, whenever we get some kind of news like this, are we looking for God to actually do something amazing? Do we care the way that Nehemiah cared? See, I don't think we do. I think a lot of times we're content living our comfortable lives. And whenever we hear of others' troubles and disgrace, it doesn't change a thing about us. I think that we often live that way. Since I don't want to pick on you guys, I'll say, I know I often live that way. So, this was his moment of truth. And I think we need to look at how Nehemiah responds and how we should respond to those around us who are living in trouble and disgrace. Okay? So that's what I want to tell you about today. How should we respond to those living in trouble and disgrace? First, we should respond by mourning over their disgrace. By mourning over their disgrace. I mean, look, look at the first thing Nehemiah does whenever he hears this news of his ancestral home ground. Remember, this is a place he's never been. Most of these people are probably people he's never met. It's a place that's far away over there, not, not directly impacting his day-to-day life. He could go on continuing to be comfortable, living his good life and with his cushy job. He could be perfectly fine continuing to do that. But verse 4, it says, When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I sat down and wept. And I had to ask myself this question as I was studying this text. I had to say, when was the last time I heard news of somebody else's trouble or somebody else's disgrace and I just sat down and I wept over it? Like, when was the last time you cared so much about somebody else's struggle that you literally cried over it? Some of you are like, I did that four times this morning. Some of you are like, I haven't ever done that. Which makes me wonder, is our bigger problem the fact that we don't know how to start, or is our bigger problem that we don't care? I think the bigger problem is actually a heart problem. 
I don't think it's a behavioral or an activity or a strategic issue. I think our first problem is a heart problem. See, God, on this day, whenever Hanani comes in, God broke Nehemiah's heart. Broke his heart for what was breaking is. He broke his heart. And I think too often we think the answer to the church's problems or the answer to somebody else's problems, somebody else's um, issues, not knowing Jesus, whatever it is, we think that their problems are oftentimes we think, well, the problem is um, we're not doing the right, we're not using the right strategy here. Maybe we need to come up with a new strategy, and that'll fix the brokenness. Or maybe, maybe what we're thinking is, you know what, um, maybe we need a new style. Let's just go about this from a different angle, and maybe it'll work better. I don't think the bigger problem is stylistic or strategic. I think the biggest problem is that we don't really care. If something doesn't work out, we're like, well, guess it wasn't meant to be, and we move on. I think the biggest problem is that we have a heart issue. See, I think a lot of times our primary problem in the church is that we become so calloused towards those who are hurting. But we get examples all over the New Testament from people who have their hearts broken, and it shows in what they do. Like, their hearts are broken for what breaks God's heart. I think about Paul's example. I've told you a couple times, even just recently, about uh, my family's little time of worship. I love our family's time of worship. We're reading through Acts. And in Acts chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, Paul here, he calls together the Ephesian elders, and he's basically saying goodbye to them. He's saying, this may be the last time I ever see you. So, it says, when they came to him, he said to them, You know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears. And during the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. Paul says, look, I was here with you all. I served with you all. And I cared so much, I wept with you all. Like I was here. We we wanted the same things. Our hearts were broken over the same things. And it drove us to action. That drove us to action. So look at Paul's example. Or Jesus' example is another good one. Right after the triumphal entry. We oftentimes overlook this passage because we like to talk about the triumphal entry. And then we're gone for a week. We come together on Easter Sunday. We talk about the resurrection. So we miss everything else that happens after Jesus comes in. But this comes right after the triumphal entry. Jesus is entering Jerusalem just days before the cross. And it says in Luke chapter 19, verse 41, it says, As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it. He didn't weep for himself knowing that he was about to die. He wept for the city. Because he knew of their brokenness and their broken relationship with him. And he wept over it. It broke his heart. Or another example from Jesus. Um, and I love this one. Because this is like the greatest memory verse ever. Okay? Anybody know what it is already? Uh, Steve, you're cheating. Somebody said it. Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. 35. I can put it up here just so you can see it. That's the whole verse. There's nothing before or after that. Jesus wept. You know why Jesus wept? Because he was, it says, in that text, it says, he was moved in his spirit and troubled. He wept because he was broken over the people around him, seeing their brokenness. And he wept. Look, I'm not telling you that we need to be super emotional and every time something bad happens, we need to sit down and cry. Okay, and I also understand that this is a different time and a different place. And these people in this time, they were very emotional and they, they displayed it physically. Like it wasn't uncommon for somebody who heard bad news to like just rip their shirt open. I thought about doing that this morning, but I don't want to have to sew buttons back on. Um, so like they, they would, they would tear their clothes. They would sit down on the ground. They would throw dust in the air. They would put ashes on their head. They were very emotional. And whenever they got those emotions, they expressed them physically. They found a physical way to do that. So I understand all that, that that's the context that those things are happening whenever these people are weeping. But at the same time, I think that every once in a while, our hearts need to be broken. 
I don't think it's a bad thing, guys. It's okay if you cry. And I'm, maybe I'm saying that because I'm a crybaby, and it's getting worse and worse as I get older. Like, I made fun of my dad for a long time because he got emotional about stuff, and I'm getting older, and I'm starting to get emotional about stuff. Um, so, sorry to my dad. But we see, we see that these people, they, they let God's, what breaks God's heart, they let that break their heart. And that's what happens with Nehemiah. Now, I want to express a word of caution here, okay? Because next week, we're going to find that Nehemiah didn't experience this heartbreak. And then, like, that same moment, he's like, okay, my heart's broken over this thing. I'm going to quit my job today. I'm going to move to Jerusalem today, and I'm going to go fix this problem. That's not what happened at all. As a matter of fact, next week in chapter 2, verse 1, we're going to see that that whenever Nehemiah decides to do something, it's during the month of Nisan, which is four or five months after Hanani came and told him about the state of Jerusalem. Four or five months later. Okay, so I don't think that we need to be reckless or irresponsible or have a knee-jerk reaction to every emotional thing that happens to us. But I do think that whenever God starts breaking our heart for something, it's a good time to stop and start asking God what he wants us to do. Okay, y'all tracking with that. Y'all good? Nobody answered, so maybe not. Okay, so we need to be wise in how we move, but we need God to break our hearts for what breaks his. And that's the first thing we see. Y'all, that's not a good sound. If I wind up on the floor, I apologize. We should respond by mourning over the disgrace of others. Second thing we need to do whenever we see those living in trouble and disgrace is we need to respond by fasting, seeking God's direction. Fasting and seeking God's direction. And some of y'all are going to tune me out at this point because I'm going to start talking about fasting. I get it. But look at verse 4. It says, When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before God, the God of the heavens. Um. You know what? I, I like strictly anecdotal evidence. I, I got to talk to somebody this week, and all I had was anecdotal evidence for what I was talking about, and I'm going to use it today too. Okay? Um, this is strictly my opinion. I have no hard data to back this up. I'm going to give that disclaimer. No hard data to back this up. But I believe that fasting may be one of the least practiced disciplines in the American church. I, I really believe it probably is which is really kind of silly if we think about what the Bible teaches regarding fasting. See, Nehemiah, Nehemiah here in today's text, he practices it, practices fasting as he's seeking God's direction. His heart's broken over the state of Jerusalem. And then it says, he mourned and he fasted as he sought God's direction. See, and this isn't just something that they did in the Old Testament because they were super expressive and they wanted to do something physical to show their inner grief. It's bigger than that because the New Testament, you go to where Jesus starts talking, he just assumes his followers are going to fast. It's just, a, it's almost taken for granted, like, of course my followers are going to be people who fast. Of course they're going to. I mean, I, this may sum it up as good as any place in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. And by the way, we're going to be looking at this again in March. So you want to know a date not to be here? Don't be here for the month of March because we're going to talk about fasting. Um, that's a joke. That is a joke. Be here for the month of March. We'll talk about some other stuff with it. But here's what it says. Here's what it says. Jesus is teaching here. This is the Sermon on the Mount. He says, whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. And notice Jesus doesn't say if you fast or if you see the need to fast. He says whenever you fast and when you fast. Jesus is assuming you will practice the the discipline of fasting. 
It's assumed that Christians will. Yet, if I can't, I'm not going to, I don't want to guilt you all. But I, I promise you, there are a number of us around this room who have never practiced fasting. Never. Much less often as a discipline in the Christian life. Jesus says, when you fast, whenever you fast. And in this, in this, in this passage here, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually talks about fasting like this. He talks about it in the same line of thinking as giving and prayer. Y'all, you know, preachers like to talk about giving, right? Another joke that nobody caught on to. Preachers love to talk about giving, right? So put more money in the offering plate. We talk about how giving is an act of worship, right? We, we, we get that. Like giving is an act of service to God, an act of service to the church where we give of our financial resources. We put it in an offering plate, and then the church uses it for the ministry, right? We all get that. That's a good thing. The preachers don't have any shame in talking about. Or prayer is something I talk about maybe every other week, if not more often than that. Like, prayer is a big deal, and we all get that. And in the same breath, almost, Jesus says, give, pray, fast. And we know we need to practice these other two. Why are we fasting? I I have a theory, and maybe I'm going to step on toes with this one, but I don't really care. I think the reason we don't fast is because that will actually require sacrifice of us. Because if I came around the room right now, and I said, you know what? You have to put an extra $100 in the offering plate this week. There would be more of you that would do that than if I came around the room and said, you know what, you've got to skip lunch today. More of you would put $100 in the offering plate than skipping lunch today. Why? Because you're actually going to feel skipping lunch. The $100, let's be honest, a lot of you out here be like, yeah, it would stink to lose that, but, you know, it's uh, whatever. Am I right? I'm not catching many arguments here. Of course, you're like, I don't know if I can talk. Um, I get it. It would actually require sacrifice. Real sacrifice, like something you would feel. And I think that's why oftentimes we don't fast. It's because we're not comfortable with real sacrifice. Something that's going to hurt. Yet, all throughout the Bible, it's assumed that followers of Jesus, the people who serve the Lord, will fast. And seek God's guidance. So I think it would be a good idea to actually talk about that. By the way, um, I've told you guys we're going to try to start up small groups again soon. And again, this week I don't have a a sign-up sheet. Preach or fail? I don't know. Um, Anyway, so I don't have that. But one thing that I have wanted to lead lead a group through for a long time is spiritual disciplines for the Christian life. And in this book, and nobody's going to do this thing either because you don't want to fast and you don't want to know what it's all about. So everybody's like, don't do that one. Um, Donald Whitney, in this book though, he does an entire chapter on the discipline of fasting, and it's, it's fantastic. And I just want to share with you um, what he says about how this should be an ongoing thing, that the church should practice this today. He says, since there is nothing here in the Bible or elsewhere in Scripture indicating that we no longer need to fast, and since, you, since we know that Christians in the book of Acts fasted, we may conclude that Jesus still expects his followers to fast today. So what is fasting? Okay, I've, just, I've been sitting up here for a while not telling you you need to fast. Like, that's something we need to do as we seek God's direction. We should fast. Okay, what is fasting? Well, fasting is not running at a high rate of speed or even eating food at a high rate of speed. It's actually abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. That's the simplest definition I can give you. Abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. Now, some of you are thinking, well, I've heard of these diet plans that talk about fasting. 
Y'all ever heard of those diet plans that have fasting, whether it's intermittent fasting or it's um, periodic fasting so that you cleanse your body? I'm not even sure what that means. Maybe somebody could educate me later. Um, but th- there's all of these ideas, and it has health benefits for fasting. Just so you know, that is not biblical fasting. Now, that may be good for you, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not knocking that, whatever. If that's a good thing for your health, sure, go for it. But biblical fasting is intentionally abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. For spiritual purposes. And I think that that is an incredibly important distinction to make. Okay? The way that David Platt puts it is that food, he talks about food as if it's a God-given addiction. And I think that's a really good way to look at food. A God-given addiction. It's something that you need. That we, are, we are addicted to food. And it's given to us by God. So food is not a bad thing. Understand that. Food is not a bad thing. But... But what we're saying whenever we're fasting is we're saying, God, we need you and your direction more than we need our most basic physical need. We need you. That's what we're declaring as we fast. We're saying, God, we need you more than we need food. So when we see tragedies like what is happening right now, like today in Afghanistan, whenever we see tragedies like that, We should humble ourselves before God with fasting and prayer. Before we make decisions as a church, we should fast and seek God's direction. And there are too many other examples that we could get into today. The point of all this is, Nehemiah's heart was broken, so he mourned the disgrace of those who were troubled, and he fasted as he sought God's direction. Okay? Third thing that we should do in response is we should respond by praying for God's intervention. Praying for God's intervention. Verses 5 through 11 actually record the first prayer in the book of Nehemiah. And prayer throughout this book is going to be a theme. So we're going to see it come up again and again and again throughout Nehemiah. But this is the first recorded prayer we get here in this book. And that's what verses 5 through 11 are. Um, Now, before I talk talk about this, and I'll I'll try to go pretty quick through this, but I I want to place one more disclaimer. I've said before from this platform that I don't necessarily think that there is one right way to pray. I've said that before, and I will continue to say that. We need to pray, and if we get so caught up on the form of prayer that it paralyzes us, and we're like, well, you know what? I'm not going to pray because I don't want to pray wrong. Like, we've missed the point then. So you need to be praying. But what I do think that we get here are four clear elements that I do think that we should at least try to incorporate into our prayer lives. I'm not saying every prayer has to follow this outline. That's not what I'm getting at. But I do think we would be doing a good job whenever we pray if we actually considered these elements and we thought about this. So the first element we find here in Nehemiah's prayer is praise, which naturally expresses humility also, right? So he's saying, what he's saying is, God, you are awesome. God, you are higher than us, which by, by connection means, God, we are lower than you. We are placing ourselves in the proper place, okay, under God. We are subordinating ourselves to you. And that's what we find him doing. Verse 5 says, Lord, the God of heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands, let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. Nehemiah recognizes God's greatness and in the same breath he expresses humility. And notice, he doesn't just pray this prayer once and move on. He's praying day and night, crying out to God. So, he expresses humility and praise before God. Second element we find here is a confession of sin, right? You get to the last part of verse 6, starting there. It says, I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. We have acted corruptly toward you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. But I have a quick question here. The broken walls in Israel, 
How does that have anything to do with Nehemiah's sin? Right? The broken walls happened generations earlier. Nehemiah's maybe never even been to Jerusalem. Yet he's saying, we sinned. We are guilty. I and my father's house. Like, we have sinned. First person plural. Like, not not just they sinned. God, forgive them. No, forgive us. We have sinned. So how in the world is this his fault? Well, Nehemiah here is recognizing that he is a part of the people of God. And he is saying, God, forgive your people. Forgive us. That would be like me saying today, like, we have sin in the church. Lord, forgive us. Forgive our church. Even if I'm not a part of that direct sin, God, forgive us because your body has failed. So forgive us. So he asks God for forgiveness. He identifies with his ancestors and he confesses sin. Third, he expresses God's desires back to God. He prays scripture over and over again in this prayer from Nehemiah. It's filled, just absolutely filled with allusions to the Old Testament, especially from Deuteronomy. Right? So think about this. God has revealed his perfect will to us, right? So if I came around, let's just, let's just do a quick show of hands. How many of you guys think that God's will is perfect? Just so you know, the answer is it is. Um, his will is perfect. Do you know how we can know God's will? And everybody who's got a Bible should raise their Bible. Like, here's what God's will is for us, okay? So here it is. God's will. It's perfect. We have God's will. Okay, so what else do you want? Like, tell God, God, your will is perfect, and here's what you want. Pray scripture. That's a good idea. Pray scripture. It's God's perfect will. What else could you ask him for? He revealed himself through the word, so use it. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does. There are citations or allusions to Deuteronomy chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 9, chapter 28, chapter 30, Daniel chapter 9, 2 Chronicles 6, and chapter 29, Psalm 88, Genesis 24. And those are just the ones that me and my little pea brain know of. Y'all, it's just filled with allusions to the Old Testament, to the scriptures. He prays scripture back to God. So we, I think, would be doing well is as we pray, we actually prayed scripture back to God. Say, God, here's your perfect will. Let it be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then finally, fourth element Nehemiah gets to is his request. So he tells God, he says, here's what your word says you want. Here's what your will says. Here's what your will is for your people. And then he asks God, he says, make it happen. Verse 10, he says, they... Israel, are your servants and your people. You redeemed them by your great power and strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man, presumably the king. Essentially what he says is, God, we belong to you. Your will is perfect. Let your will be done. Let it happen. So whenever we see people living in trouble and disgrace, we should respond by mourning their disgrace, fasting for God's direction, praying for God's intervention. So what? Since God made a way for us, since God has made a way for you, if you know the grace of God in Jesus, then shouldn't our hearts be broken for what break his? For what breaks his? Good English. Shouldn't our hearts be broken for what breaks his? I think they should. And if we don't care whenever something that breaks God's heart, if we don't care whenever something like that happens, shouldn't we ask God to soften our heart? 
Shouldn't we ask God to make us more sensitive to what he's doing? To what's going on around us? I think that would be a good place to start. See, because Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, this is one of my favorite verses anywhere in the Bible. I absolutely love this verse. It says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This new heart, this new spirit, this is God's heart and God's spirit. So whenever we come to know Jesus, to know the grace of God in Jesus, our hearts should break whenever his heart breaks. We should desire what he desires. We should want what he wants. Because his spirit, his heart is in us. So if we don't, we need to start seeking that. So whenever we look out and we see a lost and dying world that's, that's literally dying apart from the grace of God. And it, just so you know, if somebody dies apart from the grace of God, they spend eternity separated from God in a place we call hell. That doesn't sound good. So whenever we know that there's somebody who's going to die separated from the grace of God in Jesus, that should break our heart. Absolutely break our heart. And we should mourn for those who are dying apart from that grace. And when that happens in your heart, you need to stop and ask God for his direction. You need to start by fasting and praying that God would intervene in history and direct you in how to be a part of his work. We should fast and pray, asking God to move us. Because could God just do a miracle, right? Like, I just think about Afghanistan right now. Couldn't God just show up in the midst of a Taliban camp? Couldn't he just show up and be like, you know what? I'm God. You need to submit to me. Couldn't he do that and just like snap his fingers and change their hearts? The answer is yes, he could. But do I think that that's the way he normally works? No, I don't. Why? Because God has placed his spirit inside of believers. And now he moves and works through his church. The reason God's, God's goodness, his grace isn't going to people is because his church isn't going to people. We have the answers. We have the solution to the world's biggest problem. But sometimes, unlike Nehemiah, we're content in our own comfort. So we sit back and we wait. And we wait. And think, well, maybe somebody else will do it. So we need to stop and we need to ask God. Not only that he would change circumstances, but he would change our hearts and change our minds so that we could see how he wants us to work in history. How he wants us to be a part of his bigger plan. So we should fast and we should pray asking God to direct us. Because ultimately, Jesus is the one we need. He's the one that the world needs. He's, what every, he's the answer to the biggest problem, right? We just, we just received communion here a little bit ago where we celebrated his broken body and his blood. Why? Because that's the way that we can be made right through him. Our sin is dead because he died. And he rose again, proving that he had power over sin and death and hell. That's good news. Man, we should celebrate that. That should move us. Because Jesus is the answer. So if you don't know Jesus today, like, I, I, I can't tell you anything more important. Like, if you know that you are a sinner before God and you haven't ever experienced his goodness and his forgiveness in your life, I want to tell you today, you can. Like, it's not a big secret. It, um, I hope you've caught this. Like, it's in Jesus. How do you receive that? You trust him with everything you have. I, I don't have another step. That's it. Like, it's not real complicated. It's not easy, but it's not complicated. It's found in Jesus. So if you don't know Jesus, please, today, don't leave before you do. Like, I want to talk with you. I would love to pray with you. I'd love to know how I can help you, encourage you. If you've got questions, and even if I don't know the answers, I'd still love to hear your questions. Those are always, always fun to handle. So 
I would love to talk with you. If you don't know Jesus and you know that you are a sinner before God and you worry about your eternity, I want to tell you, you can be confident in that eternity today. So that's the first thing I want to get to. But if you do know Jesus, like if you have experienced his grace and his kindness and his mercy in your life, be thankful for that. But whenever he stirs your heart, be attentive to that. Then ask God how and when to move. And then we can see the church rise up and build. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for this man here in the Old Testament who was just an ordinary guy who you chose to use to do extraordinary things. Lord, I thank you for this book of Nehemiah, for what we can learn from it, God, and I pray that you would help your church to rise up and build. Father, do a work in me. Change my heart so that it breaks for what breaks yours. Father, and then guide us and direct us. Let's be disciplined enough to fast and to pray and to ask you to intervene in history, but more importantly, intervene in our own hearts and our own lives. God, change us so that we meet what you want in the world. Let your will be our will. Let your wants be our wants and your desires be our desires. God, change us and let us be your hands and feet to the world around us. Father, if there is a person in this place within the sound of my voice today who has never experienced your grace and kindness and mercy in their lives, God, do not let them be content in that. Father, I pray that you would make them as uncomfortable as possible until they see that they need you. Father, let me know I need you. And let us see you work. God, change us and direct us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.